Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, we, as always, have some very interesting and informative guests. Um, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years. And I think um, people tend to appreciate the, the information they're getting from us. So today we are going to dig deeply into how we need to move forward with what now appears to be a new administration headed by a man with a history of support for the arts, Joe Biden. Narek Rome, who's vice president of Americans for the Arts, knows a thing or two about what is in play and how we can expand on existing efforts to increase support for the arts and creative industries. Ultimately, just as the election depended on all of us doing our duty, you really need to Google Bessie Smith's song by that name. Future federal initiatives for the arts depend on us maintaining our engagement. It is much harder, of course, to sustain energetic commitment after the drama of an election, especially this one. But without a sustained engagement, we will miss an extraordinary opportunity for a significant improvement in how we regard and execute programs that will directly address the equity issues underlying our failure to provide greater support and investment in the arts. So if you care, please stay tuned to Mr. Rome for the entire interview. This is not entertainment tonight, but it could be life-changing for culture bearers, artists, and creative producers in our and other communities throughout the nation. I've, I've snared a really important person for this interview. <laughs> Narek Rome works with Americans for the Arts. And Americans for the Arts is probably our leading arts advocacy organization at the national level. I think there's no getting away from that. They do a lot of research to understand what's going on in the country with all of us and in each of our communities. And um, they try to navigate on our behalf with Congress and with whoever is in the White House. Since right now, we don't know who's gonna be in the White House as we record this interview on Thursday morning. And, and you know, we may not know until practically what is the deadline for uh, turning in the vote? I think it's the first week of December, but um, we're, we're, we'll work with both scenarios if, if we have a new administration. And I understand only recently from an article in the New York Times that, um, Biden has a track record of supporting the arts, even though he's not really um, informed or knowledgeable about the arts. He does seem to be somebody who respects the importance of the arts to our uh, general economic and social um, universe. Um, Trump has been somebody who has, um, as he often does, um, expressed the willingness to eliminate the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, but he hasn't really, to my knowledge, but you'll have to inform me on this, taken any kind of really concrete steps to make that happen. Probably because some people in his administration who, who do care about NEA have managed to kind of uh, maybe just not follow through on that order uh, as uh, people seem to be doing in his administration to save us from the worst um, possibilities. So um, Narek, share with me what your perspective of where we are now um, be, before 
any uh, either continuation of the existing or change to a new administration, first of all, and then project for me how, what are the priorities of the Americans for the Arts for one are going forward in trying to either save us um, during a continuation of this administration, or I really want to explore how are we going to work with this a possibly new administration in um, you know advancing more um, innovative and important initiatives on behalf of the creative industries in our country. That's sure, well, the charge yeah, of our interview. Yeah, absolutely, and I'll try and uh, sort of keep those in various in, in the three pieces that you you mentioned them in. There's a lot there. Uh, I'm happy to be on your show, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, I we are obviously recording this at a fairly uh, uh, historic moment in time where uh, right now we're watching Pennsylvania, Nevada, uh, uh, Arizona, and Georgia, those four states finalize their, their voting. They still have, you know, 10 to 15% out uh, or 5% depending on which state you're looking at. And each one, all four of those states, the, the vote that seems to be out seems to be where Biden has a uh, success rate of 60%, around 60% uh, or so or higher uh, in terms of those votes coming in for him. So in each reporting, his margin seems to increase uh, or decrease, get uh, close the margin where Trump is currently winning in those, uh, in two of those four states. Uh, and so depending on which network you're looking at, uh, uh, Vice President Biden is either at 253 electoral votes or 264 electoral votes, with Arizona being called by Fox, uh, by Fox News already, or being called on election night, actually. And remind and, me, just as a footnote to what you just said, remind me to bring up before we're finished talking, um, an article I just read in the Daily KOS, you know, that uh, it's basically a democratic um, listserv. Oh, Daily Cause, yeah. The importance of radio and the role that radio has played in advancing the conservative agenda and um, how we, we who are concerned about um, a more progressive agenda have not really um, addressed the influence of radio and, and, and dealt with that. And so I thought it was a very interesting piece. I'm going to put it in my newsletter today and I need to, I'll, I'll get your email address and well, I have it and make sure that you get on the list for the newsletter. Go ahead. And so uh, we're waiting on the status of this thing. And I guess uh, today and tomorrow will be some more vote reporting and uh, we may have more finality, at least in the initial counts of all 50 states. And then of course, uh, there are a couple lawsuits uh, being either announced or being filed by the Trump campaign uh, to address what they consider vote problems. And I haven't read the lawsuits. I'm not totally sure what they're uh, pursuing there. So, but those will uh, be considered in either a recount or um, by judges that will have some other solution uh, to dispense with, uh, to address those mm -hmm. lawsuits. But uh, it does seem that like Vice President, that Vice President Biden uh, is heading towards 270 votes, if not exactly 270 electoral votes, uh, depending on how the among these, he only needs Arizona, which is called by one AP and Fox, 
and then one other state, one of the, any of the other remaining states to Wait, win. Wait, AP has already called um, Arizona. Did I miss that? I guess I missed that. A, a, yeah, when Fo and Fox and AP that? both called it for Arizona, um, and Early, the other networks right. haven't, but they haven't finished their count yet, so, so the other networks are waiting on that. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, the, the what we've been um, Vice President Biden as a candidate uh, and as a senator and vice president, obviously, as we heard throughout the campaign, has a 47-year public service uh, record. And among that, uh, he votes when he was in the Senate, uh, Long this is many decades ago, uh, several decades ago, where he voted for when they had votes in the Senate. They don't really have too many anymore, and they certainly don't have too many uh, that are relating to arts and culture. Uh, was a pro-arts voter uh, in the Senate. And as vice president, he was also uh, a part of a team, the Obama administration, that was a very pro-arts administration. And oh, so that's, that's interesting. And so uh, as the, from that perspective, we uh, at Americans for the Arts would be, are, are, would be very uh, happy for him to become president and for uh, Senator Harris to become vice president. She also has connections to the arts, obviously a, a much shorter public service career that, um, that links her to accomplishments in the arts sector. But I, uh, Compared to where we've been these last four years, the Trump administration, as you re referenced, each one of their budgets that they've put forward, their annual budgets for the federal government, have called for termination of the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Institute of Museum and Library Services, and many other uh, agencies that uh, touch on the creative economy. And that that is about as strong of a uh, in putting in a budget calling for termination, not just a um, drawdown of the budget in those agencies, but to outright shut them down is uh, a very strong and you know, anti-arts position. Happily, though, uh, Congress, a bipartisan Congress, uh, has rejected each one each year those proposals and those requests for Congress to uh, terminate th those agencies. And we have to think and are happy to think that uh, advocacy from arts advocates all around the country, Republicans and Democrats and independents have uh, been heard on Capitol Hill. And uh, I always credit um, uh, Republican congressmen's wives to be an important constituency that's helped save the arts. There's support from uh, those in and out of office for sure. And uh, there's a long history for those agencies um, promoting uh, very strong arts, uh, um, uh, an American's arts policy that provides grants in all corners of the country in every congressional district of the country. And we've happily also been able to see the NEA's budget grow in these last four years and the years prior. But um, the fact that the president has called for termination of that, that agency has not resulted in termination. And in fact, when he has uh, signed budgets, uh, they've included increases from Congress for the agency. And so that's what, that's what we would probably see going forward. Um, we're still you know, looking through what the congressional outcomes are for these races. The House and the Senate seem to stay uh, controlled by the same party, that the Democrats and Speaker Pelosi will remain in control of the House and the Senate, which is not actually settled just yet, 
uh, is very close at uh, just a two vote margin, uh, which might be a one vote margin, could actually be tied depending on how some of the uncalled races go uh, right now, uh, not yet called races. And so in terms of our priority- have the vice president, if, if um, Biden gets in, um, uh, adds a vote, if it's a, t a tie. At one point, I thought I was hearing that we were gonna have a, a tie in the yep, uh, Senate. in the Senate. No, that is that is a possible outcome. Uh, it, we would have to wait to see the outcome of the Georgia runoff, which might be two runoffs uh, in for those two Senate seats that are open there right now. Mm -hmm. And um, those would be on January 5th uh, of next year. So, so Merrick, uh, let, let me um, uh, let me divert our conversation a little bit, because we're talking so far about support for um, uh, specific arts agencies. But I'm, I've always been curious as to why we don't have more. And I know that there was a, an initiative um, uh, pushed originally by UDAL yep. uh, to try to better integrate um, the creative industries or maybe the arts. I don't know exactly what terminology they were using um, in the economic development work of um, federal government. Where is that? Yep. No, you're exactly right. Uh, there's actually two pieces of legislation that we're excited about uh, that very much capture, and we use the phrase creative economy. Uh, it, one is called the CREATE Act, and that stands for, it's an acronym, of course, that stands for Comprehensive Resources for Economic Development to Transform the Economy. Uh, oh, hold so, on. Development to Transform the Economy. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I left out the A. Creative, uh, Comprehensive resources for entrepreneurs in the arts to transform the economy. And that's C-R-E-A-T-E. -E. And so that's one bill. And that was introduced in the Senate by Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico, who unfortunately is retiring uh, in, uh, at the end of this term, uh, at the end of this year. And then in the House, it's been sponsored by Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, a, a Democrat from Michigan. Uh, and then there's a second bill uh, called PLACE, P-L-A-C-E, Promoting Local Arts and Creative Economy work, uh, Workforce. Promoting Local Arts and the Creative Economy Workforce, P-L-A-C-E. Creative Economy and work in the Workforce. Uh, just workforce, the workforce of the uh, local arts and creative economy. Okay. Economic de uh, uh, development. Uh, and that legislation uh, has been introduced in the Senate uh, by um, Senator uh, uh, Brian Schatz of Hawaii, a Democrat from Hawaii. And in the House, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree of Maine, a Democrat of Maine, uh, who is also the co-chair of the Congressional Arts Caucus in, in the House. And Sorry, what's her name again? I'm sorry. Her name is Shelley Pingree. Okay. And what is interesting uh, is that both approaches uh, are in support of the creative economy. The CREATE Act uh, takes a set uh, of federal programs and tries to open the door further for economic development possibilities. And the PLACE Act, very similar, but also looks at some of the federal workforce programs, training programs and ways that you can support a workforce and tries to ensure that uh, the creative economy is, and those who work in it, creative workers are supported through it. 
You know, and, not just, I'm go ahead. I want to ask no. you before I forget, I just want to go to education, uh, uh, the Perkins Act and the fact that it promotes um, technical education and uh, does not, however, to my knowledge, um, have a, a specific um, uh, prescription for including the creative um, industries in that program, which I think is really important. But, mm -hmm. but go ahead and finish your thought. Yeah, no, and that is the approach for both of the bills is that there are already economic development programs and programs that help small businesses. We know that the Small Business Administration uh, just has been very active during this COVID relief uh, timeframe, which I want to get to as well uh, to talk about. And what the bill, the CREATE Act, for example, has is it calls for increased technical assistance from the SBA to the creative economy, those who are running businesses in selling, uh, either making and selling their uh, creative products. Uh, it's looking for uh, enabling microloans to those entrepreneurs in the arts, and then also uh, doing more outreach to the creative economy. They do outreach at the SBA to all kinds of workforce sectors, all kinds of uh, elements of the private sector. We wanna make sure the creative economy is also captured. And this is all built on the data, the government data, the federal data that says that the creative economy, the arts and cultural world, that it's a contribution when you add it up, add up all of their, all the economic activity is 4.5% of our nation's gross domestic product. That doesn't sound like a big number, 4.5%. But it's than some of the other ones that we think of as the, the real workhorses of our economy. It it's, is. It's, uh, yep. it's bigger than manufacturing for sure. And, and bigger than transportation and bigger than um, agriculture. And we have, we have federal agencies dedicated to transportation and agriculture. We have no agency federal agency that's dedicated to the creative economy. And so the approach we've taken, which is a very modest approach, is to identify the federal programs that are doing what they do in, in uh, focusing on how to build, grow jobs and, and invest around the country uh, to have a healthier economy and trying to make sure that, they, that those programs specifically uh, include both, uh, creative workers and creative economy uh, entrepreneurs and businesses in there. Sometimes they do. This isn't to say that this hasn't happened before. They but it's do. not a deliberate policy. It's not intentional. And that's no. really what we're trying to go after is to make sure that they are thinking about it and doing it with uh, some, some wisdom involved. Okay. So now let me go to that education element because um, my organization uh, that in addition to doing this radio show, I have an organization called the Creative Alliance of New Orleans, and, and we're advocating for uh, better investment support for our creative economy here in a city that's considered to be like one of the creative centers of the world forever, but does not support the arts sufficiently at all because it hasn't been understood as economic development. So yeah. um, we have a program called Creative Futures where we're uh, trying to expand the program to teach uh, high school uh, students about the opportunities in the creative industry. So we have this like incredible percentage of our population is, is, is involved in some kind of creative work. 
but it's not translating into um, careers and economic uh, um, uh, uh, development on their part. So what I've said is that we need to make sure that they understand their opportunities and their parents and the guidance counselors and the, and the teachers understand the opportunities. I've had trouble getting funding for it because that program doesn't recognize the creative industries. Mm -hmm. it, uh, so it, in our state, so we have yep. a program called Jumpstart, which is our state program that is funded through the Perkins Act. And um, it, it, uh, it, it does include some disciplines, some sub-disciplines, let's say fashion or um, design, but it won't allow for us treating the whole creative industry. So that's, that is some kind of a provision that I think needs to be um, amended somehow into the Perkins Act program. Assuming the Perkins Act is alive and well, I don't, I assume yeah. it is. Okay. No, it is. Uh, and there's a couple aspects to it. There has been in recent years, um, we, we were successful um, to improve the, um, the section of it that has to do with uh, career and technical education, CTE, which is the right. usually in the education sector, how they refer to it. Um, there was some added language that for CTE programs uh, that are around the country that they should now include, integrate art and design skills into being eligible for those federal dollars. When, when was that passed? Um, that was in uh, 2016, uh, for which they would then go probably through a, a year of um writing regulations around it. So more like 2017 would have been when it uh, formally changed. But you said would Jane, have been, yeah. Part of the problem here is while it's changed, how it actually gets administered locally becomes where Americans for the Arts and many of the other arts organizations have a huge challenge to trying to make sure that local uh, stakeholders like yourself are aware of it and are accessing it because what isn't happening is that the department US Department of Education and the and those who run the Perkins CTE program aren't walking around every day saying we got to make sure that all these new eligibilities are known by the community that would best engage with them and that's what we're trying to do with the Create Act and the Place Act is to make it as you were said make it more uh, intentional uh, and determinative that they would be engaging locally with the creative economy workforce. But so where, what is the status of the CREATE Act? It hasn't been passed, right? No, it, it, it has been introduced. Uh, it has, um, we've been working to build co-sponsors for it, but I do have some really good news. And it, this is both bills, the CREATE Act and the PLACE Act, are what, we're, what we've called a messaging bill, which is to say it has about a dozen provisions in it that we don't expect all 12 to pass as a standalone piece of legislation. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that that are very, you know, no, are really um, uh, have to do with Senate procedures. But what we are hopeful for is that when the right time arrives for another vehicle that's moving through the Senate, or through the House, that we would take the language that's written out and get it included in a moving piece of legislation. Uh, so it's helpful to laying these uh, provisions out uh, yeah. and talking about it and building support for these Be concepts. Ready to count. 
and then be yeah, <laughs> right. and then be ready to move on them. And so the good news was earlier this year when uh, Congress in March was debating in a very speedy way uh, the CARES Act, uh, which is the Coronavirus Relief Act, the the biggest one that's passed so far, is uh, that they included in the eligibility and the funding program for the Small Business Administration, they included eligibility for gig workers, independent contractors, and those who are self-employed, which that was not what was, they were not eligible for SBA programs until the CARES Act. And that was- uh, uh, Gig workers, independent contractors, and what was the third one? Uh, third one was the, those who are self-employed uh, entrepreneur, self-employed business people, meaning that it, obviously they work for themselves right. and artists and those that create that category are yeah. more likely. They're three and a half and, times and more likely. In my, in my community, I can tell you that that has been really important. Uh, we have so many uh, gig workers involved with our tourism industry who suffered terribly from the crash of the tourism industry. And New Orleans is, is uh, definitely a, an economy that is excessively dependent on yep. um, tourism. And so a lot of people were really help, hurt and they were able to get some of that money. Yep. Those who and that, had negotiate it. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, so we studied, so that program, at least one of them is called the paycheck protection program, which allowed for about uh, two and a half months worth of paychecks to reach, uh, to go through small businesses, those that were had 500 or fewer employees. And then also the gig workers and individual uh, individual businesses, businesses run by individuals. Uh, and our estimate was that of the $550 billion that was put out from uh, the timeframe that this summer, essentially, when they ran the program from the spring through the summer, that is $550 billion. Of that, 13, just over $13 billion was provided to the creative economy businesses that are out there. Wow. These are and that's just a pre preliminary number. It's actually larger than that. We just don't have the SBA hasn't put out its final numbers yet. So uh, that came from the SBA. That, that came through the, through the SBA, and so 13 billion for the creative economy, and of that, 1.8 billion was for nonprofit arts organizations specifically, which is a huge amount when you think that the National Endowment for the Arts is funded at 163 million. This is almost a decade's worth of funding uh, that, uh, you know, comparable to what the NEA uh, has done. So we're very, so those, that approach, including gig workers. It was in a SBA good test for that approach and it worked and it demonstrates that um, working in this context uh, is a, is a effective strategy to go forward with. Yeah. Yep. And we okay. think that's why there's a huge amount of, uh, uh, push for a second round of the paycheck protection program because that would help. That? Well, that's what they've been. Uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin have right. been negotiating that. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's not. What do you think? You think that's going to happen? I do not think that's going to happen in the very near term, uh, as in is in 2020. I think it uh, a relief package will not happen. A second relief package a substantial relief package would not happen until uh, early next year with a new administration uh, and the Biden administration uh, and Speaker Pelosi moving so, that forward. 
So let me ask you a question, Eric. You guys are, um, one of the things that you have been doing is collecting information on what's happening in our local communities um, economically in the creative uh, arena. Um, uh, are you guys uh, uh, able or is somebody keeping track of the actual economic impact of uh, not having any funding in place right now for those workers who are still suffering from the crash of the tourism industry. And uh, although we, you know, New Orleans, the tourism industry pressured the mayor a lot to get things open. She really uh, tried to be as conservative as she could be and, and keeping people out of bars and so forth. But gradually we are in now stage three. We'll see what happens with that. But um, are you keeping a record? Uh, are you developing any kind of measures of how impacted uh, these gig workers and independent, uh, all these uh, people in the creative industry that, I, I don't know how they're living. I honestly yeah. don't understand how are they paying their rent? Um, are they losing uh, their, uh, are, how many of them have been forced to homelessness? I mean, do we know what the impact is right now of this whole epidemic without um, any kind of um, uh, 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 paycheck protection program in place. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah, no, it's and it's very it's a very distressing uh, landscape uh, there. What we started doing in March, as soon as uh, essentially Americans for Arts sent their staff home, uh, and uh, you know businesses and organizations around the country did that, uh, we began a uh, survey that tracked for arts organizations what the impact of COVID coronavirus is having on their activities. And so, every, and we've reported on it, it's um, an ongoing survey. It's a survey that, that uh, measures the, the ever increasing economic impact of the coronavirus on uh, the nonprofit arts sector. And we have other ways, uh, there's some measures in there for that help give an indication of the broader creative economy which, although that becomes harder to track uh, as well. But it's been, it is definitely, as you were um, uh, mentioning, a very um, hard stop for the art sector. That 96% of the organizations had to cancel their events, which is not surprising. Uh, that the survey that we have has found that about uh, $15 billion of damage has happened uh, due to the um, coronavirus. Sorry, say that again. I, I, I didn't catch that. Yep. No, $15 billion of uh, is what has been reported by about 20,000 different arts organizations around the country. $15 billion uh, loss? In loss, uh, lost revenue. Exactly. Um, and lost revenue to the gig workers, independent um, uh, producers, et cetera. Yeah, well, yeah. Although this is primarily arts organizations that are responding oh, to the sorry, survey. That's right. Yeah. And uh, there is a separate survey that also was tracking artists and creative workers that uh, found a very similar. Um, uh, and we have a, a one pager that lays all this out that I can share and you can post please, in your please newsletter. Please do send that. I would love that. Yeah. Um, and so, and, the, and also how we can uh, give give the link or whatever to so that people can continue to track it. I think it's it's really important for yep. people to understand that. You know, um, uh, let let me again divert the conversation a little bit and uh, um, say this. I, I think those of us who are in the nonprofit sector 
who suffer constantly from um, very uh, uh, minimal um, resources. And especially in a city like New Orleans, where despite the importance of culture here, um, our business community, civic and public communities don't really yet understand the importance of the arts to economic development. Um, the model that we're working under where we're dependent on donors, corporate giving, some public support from the federal government um, and minimal from the local government that is you know, virtually at this point impoverished by the uh, uh, epidemic, but generally speaking is not uh, flush by any means. This is a model that um, I, I, I don't think it's really working for um, allowing the growth of the creative industries as a economic development sector at a time when so many of the other sectors are being automated or run offshore and, and, and where you know, jobs are evaporating, but creative industries is a potential for growth. Uh, you know, have you guys been thinking in that really sort of bigger um, uh, universe of what's, what's, the, what's a better way for us to support the arts in general? Well, when I say the arts, I'm talking about the creative economy. Well, that's what I was going to say was that it's hard to, they do operate in two different spheres of economic activity and have different incentives and, and access to capital uh, in different ways. Um, you know, the nonprofit sector has both the business activity and the contributed revenue that is the base of any nonprofit sector, you know, organization out there. Uh, and that is that can be a very healthy and, and effective way of both providing a service uh, and serving communities and also uh, uh, building support from the private sector from donated uh, resources. On the other side, but I should say on the nonprofit side, they have a more limited way of, of uh, accessing capital to make uh, uh, business uh to build business activity. On the for-profit side, obviously you don't have the contributed revenue, but you do have the uh, ability to build um, your resources and access capital and, and take out loans uh, with that kind of business um, model in mind. Th they both fall within the creative economy and they um, there are um, advantages and disadvantages depending on what discipline you're in and what kind of uh, cultural activity you're undertaking or product you're, you're um, providing, a product or service for that matter. So it's hard um, to have a conversation about all of that at once, but in terms of what uh, the relief that you're talking about, what we've been working with, with the non, the, all the nonprofits, the large American Red Cross, United Way, uh, all the different philanthropic organizations out there is that Congress uh, that do, uh, can increase the, contri the contribution benefit to those organizations by making ensuring that those that tax deduction uh, can apply to all Americans so that it would be universal. Right now, uh, you or any individual can make a donation uh, to a nonprofit and take it as a tax deduction if you itemize your taxes. Uh, with the current standard deduction limiting, uh, uh, reducing the number of those who itemize their taxes, that means that donors aren't 
recognizing or unlikely to recognize the tax benefit to a nonprofit. And that's something that concerns many nonprofits. It's a, it's a very life or death concern, certainly for small nonprofits, because their donors who used to get that tax deduction may not be getting it anymore. And so the policy solution that we've been a part of and pushing for with the nonprofit world uh, and all arts organizations is to expand the charitable giving donation to all taxpayers, including those that don't itemize so that even if you uh, aren't uh, you don't have, you don't own a house and you don't have a lot of other deductions, you can still get a tax deduction for giving. Right now it's at $300. Uh, and in fact, that was part of a COVID relief bill, the CARES Act I was mentioning, in order to try and bring in more resources to nonprofits and to make it so that at least a donor would get $300 of a tax deduction. Uh, for giving to their local or any nonprofit. So that is one solution. There is more out there to answer, to get to your question of how the model. Yeah, so I think, what, I think what my ultimate concern is in a very sort of uh, philosophical policy position is that being dependent on donors and corporations for funding the arts puts you into having to um, accommodate their missions and, and their missions therefore become policy that determines who gets funding and who doesn't. And I find that not optimum in the end for, um, so for example, I mean, my organization focuses on the creative economy, not necessarily arts presentation. Art presentation, second only to diseases is a more popular um, uh, opportunity for most um, giver. And um, looking at the creative economy, that's something that most people still don't understand. So um, I, I think that uh, that's, that, that method of depending on that kind of charitable giving and all of their um, prescribed missions is not optimal. Well, it is, it is um, about two thirds of their revenue of a average nonprofits organization's revenue. About two thirds is business activity. So selling a ticket, selling tickets somewhere, um, selling, uh, uh, you know, to a performance that is, um, or selling products uh, or services. The, the other third, the remaining third being the donated uh, resources that you mentioned, it certainly varies depending on what organization you're talking about. Uh, but generally speaking, a large um, performance center or a performing arts center yeah. of some sort is, yeah. is surviving that, from- That benefits primarily presenters. So yeah. for example, here, one of our largest um, uh, uh, organizations, foundations that gives money to the arts loves having their name up on the wall in a museum. But go to them and ask for money for, uh, growing the cultural economy and they don't see that wall yeah. <laughs> opportunity. We can't, yep. get, we can't get money from uh, that kind of an organization, for example. So again, I th don't think that ultimately depending on um, income from um, uh, foundations, corporations, donors is the best solution for supporting the arts. And the old model that was current in Europe, maybe uh, 
a decade or two ago, where the government really was a very uh, key and leading partner in supporting the arts, which I know has even in Europe waned somewhat. Um, I don't know. I still think that that's a possible model. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of got you online here now longer than uh, the interview um, uh, block I have available to you on the radio show. So I've got to kind of um, I'm, I'm loved the conversation with you and, and this has been kind of an introductory and we can follow up with more specific interviews in the future. But I would like to ask you for your closing thoughts on what you think we need to be thinking about and talking about as we go into either a new administration or having to live with the existing one. Sure. Well, uh, I have them in two different ways. One, the advocacy that is needed. We need to continue uh, being very pro-arts advocates, not just at Americans for the Arts, which is what we do every day, but our work with state arts alliances uh, with the state arts agencies and with the local arts agencies and organizations like yours that bring attention and leadership to these policy areas. Uh, that is in part because of what just happened on Tuesday. More new people were elected to offices and are decision makers now at all levels, not just uh, at the federal level. And they don't know much about the creative economy or the arts and the models that you were just referring to. They don't understand where the revenues come from. And usually they don't understand how government at the local, the state or the federal level can support the creative economy and is supporting the creative economy. And that is part of the education that is our responsibility to them. And so we try to provide all kinds of outreach materials to take to those decision makers to say, Here's uh, I'm representing this community. Here's how your office supports us so that, you know, your decisions are impacting us and how it can improve the, uh, our careers and our livelihoods. So that's one. And then two uh, is we have um, over the last few months worked with about 100 different arts leaders to develop a new set of proposals. We've been talking a lot about relief and you mentioned how um, the tourism sector has been uh, so collapsed because of COVID. And we're trying to find and develop additional policy suggestions, some based on history, some are new and in innovations on how uh, the federal government and state governments can directly support artists in the community, artists um, providing mental and health uh, 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 support interventions, um, how direct employment uh, and contracting with artists from everything from public art uh, to um, uh, civic engagement uh, can be in the community's interests. Uh, and for that matter, it's a sector that e despite its distress is still serving communities all across the nation uh, in the work that they do as arts educators, uh, and as other community artists uh, in working with their municipal offices and their mayor's offices. And so uh, we have a set of 16 proposals um, that we are uh, taking. We intend to be moving into the Biden-Harris uh, transition team, we hope, uh, and that it will be what we pursue into next year as we go from relief and immediate funding for paychecks that we were talking about before into how to have a recovery in a long-term way, in a way that supports the creative economy 
a, a creative economy intentionally and uh, with, with forethought as to how this important sector can continue to generate, can get back up to speed to generating the revenues that cities and states rely on uh, through their tax revenue and their tourism business. Would you, would you please send me, can you send me something on that? Um, yep. I, I really need to have that. And um, I have to uh, figure out what do I need to do to be a little bit more um, engaged in uh, your work as it, as it uh, goes forward. Because all I pretty much get from you guys is requests for my you know, little data profiles um, uh, on a semi-annual basis. And uh, I would like to be a little bit more informed ongoing. So figure out how to put my organization and my name in there somewhere so that I can yeah. hear more. I've given up on trying to add a second interview to my show. You're going to be the show. So yeah. um, <laughs> we, uh, we, we can take just a couple more minutes to close off. Um, and I think um, I want to touch on the issue of culture bearers. In New Orleans, uh, culture bearers are a very, very important um, niche in our, um, uh, our cultural landscape. Um, our uh, Mardi Gras Indian tribes, our marching groups, our uh, musicians, um, and, and the, the definition of culture bearer, of course, is a controversial. Uh, it's not a settled issue, uh, but it definitely for us has uh, been an important part of the special character of our culture, because it, it is, I often say, the past is not past in New Orleans. It is a part of our present, and um, it is because of our culture bearers. And um, I just wondered to what extent that uh, category of, of um, art uh, producer, let's say, um, has been on the radar screen of, of your organization um, in, uh, in, in, uh, at the federal level. Well, it, it is um, what you spoke of is certainly a more locally determined uh, level of community arts for which we uh, eagerly and actively try to support through our membership, which are uh, local arts agencies. And so um, uh, both the government agencies and the nonprofits that serve cities and municipalities and counties around the country our um, both their uh, primary mission is how the arts can serve that community. And what you just raised are essentially the, the in, you mentioned the New Orleans um, aspects of it, but it, the same kind of um, cultural, local cultural uh, priorities and prerogatives uh, exist in all over the country. And our advocacy and support for the field has been to try and elevate how those um, cultural bearers have, are serving their communities in mainly unrecognized ways. And our effort is to make them recognized. And we do that by trying to bring these stories uh, and examples to the mayor's offices around the country. Uh, we work with the US Conference of Mayors uh, to try and raise the profile of their local arts agency um, and how it can play a role in both the identity, uh, the social justice pursuits in the city, and then things like more policy areas like housing and uh, healthcare, because the arts have a big role in that too. And so it's a, quite a varied amount of uh, how the arts are engaged, but it, and it, uh, each city 
uh, and community has a different way of supporting. Um, in all cases, we hope it to increase it because there, we want to be a part, we, I'm speaking for the field, uh, want to be a part of the policy discussion. We want to be a part of how the a art sector can be a part of the solution to many of the public interest areas that a city is trying to tackle. And artists are, I mean, that's part of what our study shows is that despite the coronavirus and despite being either furloughed or laid off or unemployed because of it, that uh, three quarters of artists are still working, engaged, working in an unpaid way, perhaps, uh, most likely, uh, in a way where they are serving their communities, either uh, publicly or with, uh, in connection to an agency or organization, uh, or just in, in terms of uh, with, the, with public organizations. As I'll quote our, um, uh, the woman who runs our cultural economy office in, in, in the mayor's office, in a conversation we had not, not too long ago, she said, is the artist who will lead us out of this. And um, I, I, I have, we have evidence of that every day here in New Orleans, uh, for sure. This yeah. has been so interesting. I sure hope people listening to the radio show um, who are used to more sort of lighthearted banter will yeah. uh, stay tuned and listen to you because it's really important to understand the things that we've been talking about because instead of complaining about how we don't get enough support, blah, 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 um, here's what's going on and here's where you can... Um, um, uh, become a part of the solution. Yeah. And, and to be a part of the solution, I just recommend uh, joining our the Americans for the Arts uh, Action Fund, which is where we, for free, uh, it's where we send out our email updates on the policies that I've been talking about, the opportunities for advocacy, and the ongoing, certainly as we shift uh, government into uh, 2021, we will, that's where uh, our information um, is most. Uh, how, how does somebody do that? Like, just give me the, what's the. Uh, you go uh, to uh, uh, www.artsactionfund.org and it's a free Action membership. Fund.org. Yeah. membership. Okay. Fantastic. Narek, um, you have a, a, been so informative and um, I hope that you will keep us in mind. Um, uh, our audience, we are uh, the um, urban station in New Orleans, WBOK, um, 12.30 a.m., but our audience is uh, very diverse. Um, I, I, say, I always say that our newsletter goes to everybody from uptown garden clubs to downtown radicals, and I um, really try to serve uh, the full range of our, economy, our, our community, and it's very important that they hear the things that you're saying. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yep. No, thank you for having me on and thank you for bringing these issues to your radio show. And uh, I wish you all the luck and, and uh, stay tuned and let us know how we can help. Sounds good. Have thank a good you. day. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Some good information, maybe a little fun. And um, I wanted to let you know that we have a newsletter that goes out just in advance of the show. You can sign up for it simply by going to crosstownconvos at gmail.com. And uh, it's got a lot more stuff in it, a lot more articles and images and uh, information on the guests who are on. So um, think about it. Sign up if you'd like. Um, Gene Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, what people are talking about. If I call three times a day, baby, come and drive.
I'm not satisfied with the way that you do. I've got the 